everyone, and welcome to Criminal Discourse. My name is Trish. And my name is Maddie. This is our first time in the studio, so please be kind. So we thought we would give you a little mini teaser episode of what's to come. Um, Maddie and I are super excited. This is something we've been working on for months and a bucket list kind of thing, putting this podcast together. Most definitely. Okay, so the first little mini episode we wanted to share with you is kind of an international manhunt. This involves a fan from Newport Beach, California. So I'm talking about the Chadwicks, Peter and QC is his wife. Her formal name is Cho Lim Chadwick, and I may have pronounced the first part wrong, so we're just going to call her QC as most of her friends did. Let's avoid offending. <laughs> um, but they met, they were both from England, they were both from affluent families, they met in college, and the, soon after college they married and started a family, and they ended up having three sons. Uh, the older one in October of 2012 was away at boarding school at the time. Now, since they were from England, and you know, I said this happened in Newport Beach, California, they moved to the United States in 1991. And Peter was holding dual citizenship in both the U.S. and the U.K. And eventually, I think QC became a citizen also. So they settled in this gated community in Newport Beach. Now, since Peter came from an affluent family, he also made his own money. He was a multimillionaire real estate investor. And QC stayed home to raise their boys. Even though one was off to boarding school, they still had two younger sons. Now, QC was described by her neighbors and friends as being a devoted devoted mom, being very personable, but seemed to rely on Peter, especially when they settled in the U.S. because she didn't know anybody. You know, the U.S. can be a bit of a culture well, shock. It makes sense. So for my two cents, my husband followed me from a foreign country and especially in the first couple years like besides the fact that we're codependent anyway it's very much like you have to depend on that person now granted she it seems if she lived in England spoke English and all of that but it must be hard too like when you're not working like moving to a new place with your family you're not working so you don't have like that forced social interaction Mm -hmm. so it's going to probably be harder to really get to know people and get out so it does make sense Mm -hmm. that she was very reliant on him especially in the beginning right so she initially did rely on her husband a lot and she was a stay-at-home mom but she was very friendly very outgoing to the neighbors when she settled in and got to know them in this quiet gated community where Peter though was described as really quiet and sometimes painfully shy So even though she relied on him, he kind of, she outshined him in the personality department. So on October 10th, 2012, Peter and his wife, QC, neither one of them to show up at the bus stop in the afternoon. And that was rare. That had never happened before. One or the other would always show up. So here are these two young boys getting off the bus and neither of their parents are around. So they had ended up at a neighbor's house who contacted the police to do a welfare check because they're like, this is... Like, they made no arrangements, no one's here, they've never done this before. So when they arrived to the house, the police were able to gain entry into the home because, again, they knock, no one's there, what's going on, you know, they're saying this is out of the norm. So they proceeded into the house, and they ended up in the master bathroom upstairs, and they knew something was wrong because they found a lot of, like, red broken glass around the outside of the bathtub, Mm. 
If that wasn't the clue, the blood in the bottom of the bathtub might have been a bigger indicator that something was wrong. Yeah, where there's blood, something bad happens. Right. Broken glass and blood are a big tip. And missing parents. And missing parents. So they go downstairs and they find in a downstairs office area that there was a safe and it was left ajar. So now they're thinking, was this a home invasion? And they've been kidnapped because they don't know where this family is. So, of course, they're immediately putting out bulletins. They didn't know where the Chadwicks were. They had no clue what was going on. So they were really concerned that something bad had happened. So as the police are trying to track down the Chadwicks, a 911 operator receives a phone call at 5.30 a.m. on Saturday morning. And it's Peter. And he claims that a guy named Juan no last name, had murdered QC and had forced him to put her body into his SUV and drive towards the Mexican border. So once they reached the border, another guy met them there named Chi. And yes, I paused there because you gave me a look. And both of them took off. They have moved QC's body from his SUV to their truck van, the way he's described it as a pickup van, but I've never a heard of it. A pickup van. Right. That's how Peter described it. So they took off with QC's body, planning on cutting her up and burying her in the desert. So the 911 operator, I listened to the tape, and I only laugh because this 911, God love those people. They hear it all, I'm sure. The 911 operator asked him, sir, are you on any medications? And Peter said, well, yeah, but not any heavy ones. (laughs) So the 911 operator is like, wait, your wife's been murdered? Yeah. She's like, hold on, I'm going to get my supervisor. So what happened is Peter was making this 911 phone call from a convenience store that was about four miles from the border. Like you could see literally Tijuana, I think, in the background. Yeah. Shockingly, the police didn't quite believe him. I can't <laughs> imagine why. Like the only way that this phone call could be more ridiculous is instead of Juan and Chi, if he said Cheech and Chong. Right. Like what? Yeah. Very, very suspect. And I'm not an investigator, but when I first heard that, I'm like, hmm, that's not right. And that's a really, really bad story. So on October 11th, just six hours after he called 911, Peter was arrested for the murder of his wife. And they did this for a variety of reasons. One, the ridiculous story. Two, when they brought him in to question him, they noticed that he had these deep scratch marks on his neck. Which we'll be putting a picture of this up for our listeners. So you can see. And then they had him, of course, take off his shirt. And once they did that, on his whole upper torso, they see all of these scratch marks, bruises. And in fact, he had a bite mark on his bicep. So he's under arrest. But just to make sure, they pulled a surveillance video from the convenience store. Do your due diligence because stranger things have happened. Maybe this person who showed up in the green pickup van uh, did actually, you know, move her body to. So just so they pulled a surveillance video. Shocker. They did not see any males in the parking lot during the time Peter said they took off in the pickup van, leaving him but left him his car, you know. So they're like, "Mm, okay, along with the scratches, the bite mark, the ridiculous story. They also pulled the surveillance video from the gated community Mm -hmm. because gated communities have that. And they see him driving out in his SUV two hours earlier than he said this 
break-in occurred, and it wasn't really even a break-in, because Peter's story was, in addition to the ridiculous story I've already told, he said that he had gone to pick up Juan and brought him back to the house to do some house painting. Well, I know, because I was like, well, what's Juan's last name, and does Juan have a painting business? Well, and how many millionaire or real estate, whatever, Mm -hmm. moguls Mm -hmm. are going to go down to the local Tijuana border and be like, hey, Juan, come paint my house. Correct. So he he tells this disjointed story and they're like, mm, he did claim though, he the scratches, they're like, well, how'd you get those scratches? And he claimed that um, he had fought with Juan because when he brought Juan back to the house, he had said he had gone into his office and Juan had gone upstairs and soon after he heard his wife screaming and when he entered the bathroom, Juan was choking QC and holding him at bay with a two-inch pocket knife. Then in the struggle, he said he struggled with him, but he didn't really give any specifics. Like, did you overpower him? Did he overpower you? You know, like Mm -hmm. nothing. He just said, well, we struggled. Well, and so in that instance, Juan also decided that as opposed to using that pocket knife, he was going to bite Peter, right? He didn't even mention no. the bite mark. Okay. No. He, like, he didn't give the police nothing. He just said, we struggled. So so they're looking in, of course, Peter's SUV. And what they find is a packed suitcase full of Peter's clothes <laughs> put in in a haphazard manner. And I need to get out of town. So Peter's story to the police was delivered in such a disjointed manner. His emotions raised from very quiet and calm, crying, but crying with no tears. You know, that fake cry. So the police were just like, this story is not very believable at all. And of course, the story he told the 911 operator was also not believable. Now, he claims that QC had died around 11 a.m. that morning. But again, his SUV is seen leaving the area. I think actually I said two hours early. I meant two hours later. And there was no sign of any passengers in his car. And even at a toll booth area, there were no Mm -hmm. other people seen in the car with him. So the whole time the police are talking to him, he never once asked about his sons, never brought any of that up. So to investigators, it's like, okay, if this story were true, you've watched your wife be murdered, you've had her to help him wrap her up in this green blanket he told him to get to wrap her up in, you moved her body to your car, you drove around with her, you watched these guys transport her to another pickup van and take off. And here you are, you know, you claiming you, you know, you're alive, your wife's dead. You're not really emotional. You're not really crying. And you're not asking about your sons that have just been like, where are they? Are they okay? Are they safe? Nothing. So to them, they knew. Like he was only trying to establish this ridiculous alibi to save his own backside. Right. So once Peter was formally arrested, he lawyered up and he stopped talking. I um, would have thought he should have stopped talking right after the 911 tape. I would have thought he should have stopped talking at the 911. Just say, 911, send me some police. Right. My wife's been murdered. Silence. Right. Yes, I agree. Anything else, he dug a ditch. Which again, like, and not to say that because he was successful, he should be intelligent. But like, and you can tell, like, so with what actually happened, Mm -hmm. my assumption would be it was not a premeditated, like this was a heat of the moment argument that got out of hand. He wasn't prepared. Correct. He did. He emptied the safe. He threw some stuff in a suitcase. And my first thought was, well, his first idea was to 
head right to Mexico. But then he kind of, I don't know what happened, that he changed his mind and was like, I'm going to try to make up a story about Juan and Cheat. So the police were looking for a motive because you always want to know why. Like, why would you do this? And so friends that were questioned of QC's felt that QC, as time went on, was becoming more independent. And she wasn't relying on Peter as much, and he didn't like that. Now, the police thought, okay, maybe, but what they felt more so was that QC had discovered something about Peter. Of course, they searched the home and did computer searches and everything, but they found a piece of paper in QC's handwriting that listed the searches on Peter's computer. So she had this handwritten note. Now, these were the things she wrote down. How to torture, Chinese sex massage, abortion costs in Orange County know what I would do if I came across. So maybe she confronted him, like you said, and it was a heat of the moment kind of thing. And he lashed out and killed her. So he's been arrested. He's been charged. But about seven days after Peter's 911 call, the police receive a tip. Now, they're not saying where this tip came from. They're not saying who it came from. Nothing. But it led them to 100 miles away into the mountains of South San Diego County. And on this small mountainside road in Lakeside, which is a small suburb, they found a dumpster on the side of the road, which looks to be like right outside almost a gated community Mm -hmm. in the picture. And it contained not only QC's body wrapped in the green blanket, but her handbag, which had her ID and permanent residency cards in it, and $10,000 in cash, the cash that was taken from the safe. So these were items Peter had told the police wanted taken with him when they transported her body and left him at the convenience store. The police had gotten lucky on that one, though, because that dumpster was scheduled to be emptied the morning after his 911 call. And thankfully, there was a billing dispute where everything was still there. So the dumpster was never picked up. So now they had her body. So the medical examiner said that QC had died from a violent struggle, which resulted in strangulation and possible drowning. To me, that meant he drowned. She was still alive when he put her in the water because she probably had water in her lungs then. So a very violent death. Two months after he's arrested, he's granted bond of $1 million. And this is in December of 2012. Now, people were kind of like, what? You know, how is that? He murdered his wife. But you got to understand, he had no criminal history. The police felt that he had ties to the community. His two young sons were still there. He had a business that he was running. And he had to surrender both his U.S. and U.K. passports, which he did. So he moved back home into the house he had shared with QC and his sons. And about 100 days after her death, he sent an email to family and friends inviting them to a candlelit vigil at the home for her. And this just shocked, like, neighbors, friends of hers. You know, they were like, what? Why? Yeah. What? The audacity no. of this man to do this. So about two I'm years. Shocked. I'm shocked by that. Two years later, uh, in 2014, Peter moved with his father, who also was an international real estate developer, Michael Chadwick, and he lived in Santa Barbara. So now by this time, all three boys were in boarding schools. So here's a, a quick question, which, mm-hmm. so when I'm reading, like, so the, the boys, before they were the two younger sons, mm-hmm. like when this is all going on, they're not with Peter. No, he, the boys ended up living with QC's brother in Los Angeles. So is that like a normal, like, do you know, like, so for example, if I'm charged with a crime 
and I've been charged, but my trial, like, it's supposed to be, you know, innocent until mm-hmm. proven guilty, da 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 mm-hmm. But I see often, like, the children are removed. So what's the circumstances there? I don't know. No one, I couldn't find anything on that. I don't know if that was just an agreement that Peter mm-hmm. allowed them to go live with the uncle or her family's like, yeah, these boys aren't staying with you. They're going to stay with us. And he didn't fight that. Doesn't really seem he genuinely had a close right. relationship with his sons. I think QC was the caregiver, the nurturer. So while awaiting trial, Peter showed up for all of his hearings, all of his appointments. He did what he was supposed to do. He wore his, you know, they had a monitor on his ankle. So he f- complied. And this went on for, for quite some time. This actually went on for another year after he moved in with his dad. But on January 15th, 2015, the police heard from Peter's lawyer that nobody could find him. Nobody knew where he was at. The police, of course, talked to Michael Chadwick, who's his dad, who he was living with. And Michael said, well, you know, he's really been despondent and suicidal lately. He might have gone off somewhere and taken his own life. But the police are like, hmm, okay, let's dig a little deeper. What the police soon discovered was that Peter had taken off about three weeks prior to their notification. And when police searched their his dad's home, they found some books. The titles of these books were How to Live on the Run Successfully, How to Change Your Identity, How to Live in Mexico. So pretty much they knew he ran. So they discovered also that one morning, Peter had taken a cab from his father's home in, to the Santa Barbara airport. So, of course, they go to the airport, they get their surveillance tapes, and they find that he went into the airport and he sat there in the lounge for about six hours. Just sat there. Didn't get on a plane, didn't go up to, like, the ticket desk, sat there, and then left after six hours taking another cab. So when they talked to the original cab driver and they said, showed him a picture of him saying, hey, you picked him up at this, you know, address and you brought him to the airport, the cab driver was like, well, yeah, but I picked up a woman. And the police were like, what? And But because on the surveillance, it's Peter. Right. So they, they think he dressed as a woman, got in the cab, went to the airport, and then changed back into his clothes for whatever reason. He, when he left the airport and got into another cab, they don't really say where he went. Mm-hmm. So they assume, but they don't really say. So I think the police in this incident, you know, they hold stuff back. Well, especially if it's an active case. Right. Like, they can't obviously release everything. Correct. The police also found out that over the previous, like, two, three years, Peter had slowly been withdrawing small amounts of money from, like, seven different bank accounts. So just enough, a couple hundred here, a couple hundred there, Mm -hmm. just enough to not raise suspicion. But over this time, he had accumulated anywhere from, I read, $1 million dollars to possibly up to two and a half million dollars. Because he also had, according to the older son, some offshore bank accounts that he had access to. So now that he's on the run, they can't find him. The U.S. Marshal Service now gets involved. And what they believe is that Peter had, when he had left the Santa Barbara airport, made his way to Canada before going south to to Mexico, where it's easier to get a passport. Mm Because apparently... When a lot of fugitives go on the run, they end up in Mexico because the process is easier to get a passport to fly out. But they also believe Peter was given help by someone. They're not saying who. (coughs) Daddy. He's been really depressed, and I haven't seen him for like three weeks. I mean, we live in the same house. Correct. 
but I haven't seen him. So the marshals reported that as of 2017, they felt Peter was in Mexico, but by now could be somewhere in Asia because he did seem to favor Asian countries, given that his wife also was of Asian descent. There is a $100,000 reward currently out for Peter Chadwick. 25000 came from the U.S. Marshal Service and 75000 came from the city of Newport and private donors. So I'm imagining family and friends of yeah. QC. So it's $100,000. They've even contacted Asian sex workers, hence his you know, internet search, to let them know that there is this award to turn him in should they come in contact with him. So a description of Peter Chadwick. He is a, currently a 54-year-old Caucasian male who stands five foot seven, weighs approximately 160 pounds. He has brown hair, blue eyes, and may be going by the name Gregory or Pete. When you see his face, like he has a very distinctive face. When I first saw his picture, I thought I was like, oh, how much work has he had done just by the way like his face is formed. But then I saw a family picture of like him with the kids and the Mm -hmm. one son, I think it's the older son. He has like that same like it's in his cheeks. It almost looks like he has cheek implants or something. And his son has the same face. And I think that's just the way his face is structured. Yeah. But Anyway, it is very distinctive. distinctive. It is distinctive. So if you have any information, please contact the U.S. Marshal Service at 1-800-336-0102 or through their website at www.usmarshals.gov slash tips. We will be posting photos online of the wanted poster from the U.S. Marshal Service for you to view. So that is our quick little mini teaser. How do you think we did? debrief i think we somewhat rocked it out of the park i think that for a first recording i think we're we're pretty solid right there's going to be a lot of editing but yes yes. and if you have comments so long as they are constructive please leave them don't be cruel be kind so we also wanted to end when we talked about this kind of some little criminal discourse life tips i think in this episode teaser episode i would say come up with a better alibi My tip also would be check your husband's internet searches often (laughs) and address them in a public setting. Correct. Thank you, everyone. We hope to be back with you again. We hope you enjoyed this mini episode. So till next time. Oh, wait, we forgot. We'll have to cut this. We'll have to edit anyway. But please follow us on our Facebook, our Twitter. We have our Instagram up. Come and get it. I haven't even seen the Instagram. And where should they go for this, Maddie? What is the... So our Twitter is at Criminal Pod. It's Criminal Discourse Podcast on Facebook. Yeah. Join us. Like us. Give us suggestions. If there's cases you're interested in that you'd like us to cover, we'd be more than happy to hear from you. Because we need ideas. Right. So until next time, take care. Be safe but also be kind. See you later, guys. Bye.